When my wife Rochelle and I moved from Southern California to Brooklyn uh, just under eight years ago, we drove cross country. Uh, and we, uh, on this journey from California to here, we saw some amazing sights along the way. And probably the most magnificent sight that we saw on, on that road trip was the Grand Canyon. Um, I don't know how many of you have, have been to the Grand Canyon in person. Uh, that picture captures a little bit of it, but it just, it, you can't capture the, the immensity of the Grand Canyon in, uh, in, a, in a photo. When I first saw the Grand Canyon, I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't, it was, it was like I couldn't fully take in the immensity of this, this site before me. I saw that, you know, the deep canyon, I saw the rim on the other side, but I couldn't comprehend its complexity at first. It took a while, actually, to kind of look and look again, and we would drive along the canyon rim, and then we started to hike down into the canyon, and it was only then that I began to understand the just the complexity of what the Grand Canyon is. There's all these smaller canyons in, in the middle there and these rock formations. And I began to understand that, that this canyon that at first just looked like this just big hole in the ground um, was actually this very deep and complex sort of thing. Um, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, I think, are kind of like the Grand Canyon. Let me explain why. That maybe sounds like a weird... Uh, uh, comparison. Take the book of Isaiah, for example, which is what we're going through during the season of Advent. There are these prophecies that Isaiah makes about the future from where he's standing. But from his perspective, he didn't understand the, exactly how all of those prophecies were going to be fulfilled over time. And so he gives these prophecies throughout his book and, and, and we actually are standing now 2,700 years later from Isaiah. And so it's kind of like we have hiked down into the Grand Canyon. And we can actually look back at, at Isaiah's prophecies and we can see that, that some of the prophecies he made were, were ones that actually took place not too long after his lifetime about Israel going into exile. And other prophecies happened a little bit later as, as Israel returned from exile to the land. And then we see some other prophecies that he, that he made that, that happened about 700 years after he prophesied when Jesus came. Things that he was talking about, about the Messiah who would come. But then there's other prophecies that, that actually we're still waiting for, that are sort of like the other end of the Grand Canyon. So we're kind of in the middle of it. We see certain things that have happened. We see th things that are still to come. And so we're kind of in this complex Place as we read the book of Isaiah and we see different glimpses of, of this complex and deep prophecy that Isaiah made. Well, as I said, this, during the season of Advent, we're going through a sermon series and we're specifically looking at glimpses of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. We're trying to, to catch a glimpse of, of, who, of how we see Jesus in this, this deep prophetic book. Um, last Sunday, we, we started by looking at Isaiah chapter 2, where Isaiah speaks about the temple in Jerusalem. And, and we saw in that passage that actually Jesus fulfills an element of that prophecy when Jesus came and announced that he himself was the new temple, that all the things that the temple had meant to do, that now he was actually fulfilling those things in himself. But we also saw that, that there were certain things in that prophecy that that we're still waiting for, the, the complete fulfillment. Well, today we're going to be looking at Jesus 
the ultimate ruler. This idea of, of how Isaiah speaks about a king, a ruler of the Messiah who is to come. And we're going to see how Jesus both fulfilled this role of the ultimate ruler, but also, and, and so how some of the text speaks about Jesus' first coming when he came 2,000 years ago, but also there's an element that we're still waiting for, too. So our text today is from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. We'll have the verses on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles or the Bibles in the pews. So uh, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Isaiah writes, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear these words that uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke so many years ago, uh, we pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, the depth that is here, Lord. And as we, as we were kind of sitting in the midst of this Grand Canyon, realizing certain things that, that have already happened, other things that we're still waiting for, we pray that you would uh, fill us with this Advent waiting and expectation um, and thankfulness and gratitude, Lord, for, uh, for the fact that you are this ultimate ruler who has come, but who is also coming again. And so open our eyes now, Lord, and our ears to hear uh, from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we look at, at how Jesus fulfilled this vision of this ultimate ruler that Isaiah gives, I want to start by actually just talking about why we need an ultimate ruler. Why do we need a, a ruler that, like, like what this, this passage is talking about? And the first reason is that when we try to rule ourselves, we make a mess of things. When we try to rule our own lives and we try to rule uh, things, we, we make a mess of things. For, for many of us, when we hear this idea of an ultimate ruler, I think there's something in us that, that actually resists this. Um, we don't want someone ruling over us. We don't want someone telling us what we can and can't do. I mean, kind of built into even our, the, just the ethos of our, of our nation is, is we want freedom and independence and autonomy 
And so this idea of someone ruling over us, I think there's something that, that rubs us the wrong way about that. We want to we rule ourselves. But here's the problem. When we are left to do whatever we want, we always make a mess of things. Uh, think of a company. A company without a leader. If a company, if everyone in a, in a certain company did whatever they wanted to do, that company wouldn't last very long, would it? Because you need a leader to set the vision and to give direction and to make sure that everyone is, is working together towards that same goal. Uh, think of a society with, where everyone could just do whatever they wanted to do, where there was, there was no rule, there was no sort of standard and, and leader. You would have chaos, right? People stealing from others, businesses, cheating people. And in the end, no one would actually be free because you would be constantly worried about someone violating your safety, violating your security. Where there's no rule, there's, we, we make a mess of things. At the end of the book of Judges in the Old Testament, there's the very last verse of that book describes that period in Israel's history this way, where it says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So this is a period of time when Israel had no king. There was no ruler. And what happened? Everyone did as they saw fit. Everybody did whatever they wanted to. And if you read through the book of Judges, you know that the result of that was a mess. It was a mess of a, of a, of a period of, in Israel's history. There was constant um, stuff that was going on. And because inevitably, when we rule ourselves, we do what's good for us. It means we often don't do what's good for others around us. And often the things that we want to do actually end up harming ourselves too. Because we're not very good rulers of our own lives. So we need an ultimate ruler. Because when we try to rule ourselves, we make a mess of things. But there's a second reason that we need an ultimate ruler, which is because the rulers in our world also make a mess of things. <laughs> so, so we need someone to rule. We need someone to lead. But when we look around at our world, even the rulers that we have don't usually help things very much. Think about Israel. When they finally got a king, it didn't really fix things. It actually created new problems for them. That first king that they got, Saul, he kind of messed things up for, for Israel. And as time went on in the history of Israel, they, the nation split into two nations, to two kingdoms, the, the north and the south. And by the time the prophet Isaiah came along, he had some pretty strong words for the rulers and for the king in Judah. Um, this is from the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. He says this to Judah. He says, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So Isaiah, he looks around at, at the nation of Judah and he says, these rulers, they're not helping things. They're dishonest. They don't protect the vulnerable in the society, the, the fatherless and the widow. They didn't rule with justice or fairness. Instead, they were just interested in their own selfish gain. Sound familiar? 
We look around at our world and we see a lot of the same stuff that Isaiah saw in Judah. Too often our, our leaders, our elected officials, are, are primarily interested in their own selfish gain. You know, scoring political points and holding on to their power rather than actually governing with justice and fairness. And we see that on both sides of the political aisle. You know, leaders on both sides of the political spectrum aren't very good at caring for the vulnerable that Isaiah talked about. Like the unborn child on the one hand or the undocumented child on the other. Both need protection and compassionate care. But too often, they both become pawns in a political game. So we need a ruler. Because left to ourselves, we make a mess of things, and, and our rulers also make a mess. So we need, we, are, we have this longing inside of us for an ultimate ruler, a ruler who will be full of justice and compassion, who will rule like Isaiah talks about. Well, in our, our, our text, Isaiah says that there will be a ruler like this. He says that, that this ultimate ruler will come. And then he describes certain things about him. So the next thing I want to look at is the promise of an ultimate ruler. What does Isaiah say here about this ruler that, that, that we're waiting for, that we have this longing for? Well, verses 1 and 2 of our text describe certain things about his identity. So about kind of who this person is going to be. Who, who will this ultimate ruler be? Where will he come from? How will we know who he is when he comes? Well, the first aspect of his identity that Isaiah highlights is that he will be from the line of David. Um, in verse 1, Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse, who he's referring to there, was the father of King David. Um, and so when, when he says that, that he's talking about the stump of Jesse, he's talking about the line of David. Jesse was the father of David. And, and if you know anything about, about David, he was actually the one king in Israel's history where, where actually he's celebrated, right? There was, there was sort of a golden age under the rule of David. Now, we know also that David was not perfect. He uh, messed up in different ways, too. So even he was not the ultimate ruler. But, but things got even worse after David. And so Isaiah, when he came on the scene, he predicted that, that Judah would be conquered and sent into exile, and that actually the line of David ruling in the land would end. That's what, what he's talking about when he says the stump of Jesse. That this, this tree, this, this mighty tree in the line of David would be cut down to be left to just a stump. But then he gives this, this promise. He says, out of that stump is going to be this shoot, this branch that's going to begin to grow. And it's going to come from that same line, from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. I actually saw something kind of like this several years ago when Rochelle and I went uh, to visit the Redwoods in California. Um, one of these, these huge, mighty trees had fallen to the ground. And, and you can actually see in, the, in this, this photo here, you can see the roots. That's, that's the roots of the tree. Uh, you can't quite get the scale of it. I should have like, had a person in there to see. But, but it's, it's this, this tree that has fallen to the ground, and, and there's the roots. But if you notice at the top, what's happening? 
There's these little trees growing out of the stump, out of the, the roots of this, of this larger tree. And that's what, what Isaiah says is going to happen, that, that although the kingdom was, was, was ended and, and people had gone into exile and, and the line of David seemed to be, to be done, that actually, no, there was going to be this, this branch that would sprout out of the line of David, out of the stump of Jesse. Another aspect of the identity of this ultimate ruler that Isaiah says is that the spirit will be upon him. Um, verse 2 Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah says that this ruler is going to be especially anointed by the spirit of the Lord that's going to give him all these amazing qualities, wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What he's saying here is that that this ruler is not going to rule with human wisdom, human understanding, but wisdom that comes from God, that comes from the Spirit. And so this this ruler, he's going to come from the line of David. The Spirit is going to be upon him in a unique sort of way. And then Isaiah begins to talk in the next few verses about what is going to happen when this ruler comes, when he begins to reign. So there are certain things that he highlights about his rule. So we have his identity, and then we have his rule. And the first thing that he says about his rule is that he will establish justice. We see that in in verses 3 through 5, where Isaiah says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So Isaiah says that this ruler, he's going to rule justly. He's going to rule with fairness. He's not going to play political games. He's not going to favor certain people for certain reasons for, to get something out of it. No, no, this, this ruler... He's not going to judge by appearances. He's going to do what's right. He's not going to be swayed by the influence of the rich and powerful, but he's going to listen to the case of the needy. He's going to judge fairly. And this is such a contrast from how the kings of Judah ruled. And as we said earlier, it's also quite a contrast from how many of our leaders today rule. And so so this king king who's going to come, he's he's going to rule with justice and fairness and and equality. And, and then the other aspect that, that Isaiah highlights about his rule is that he will establish peace. In verses 6 through 9, Isaiah describes the result of this king's rule through these really vivid images. He talks about the wolf living with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat and an infant playing near the hole of a cobra. I don't know, when, when I read that, there's like almost this like cringe when you hear that, right? Get that kid away from that snake's den, right? But he says, no, no, no. When this king rules, there's not going to be any worry about that. Why, why is that? Well, what, what Isaiah is doing here is he's using these images to convey the fact that when this king rules, he's bringing a kingdom of peace, of, of safety, 
of reconciliation on the earth, where there's no more violence, there's no more conflict, there's no more fear. And, and he says that even this peace is going is to extend even to creation. It's almost like Isaiah, when he, when he is giving this description, he's, he's really giving a description all the way back to Genesis of the Garden of Eden, of paradise, that there's going to be a new beginning. There's going to be this new reality when this king comes. But here's the thing. When Isaiah gave this prophecy, over the years, it didn't look like much was, was happening. And actually, 700 years after Isaiah prophesied these things, the Jewish people were still looking for the fulfillment of these promises. They were under the the rule of the Roman Empire at that time. There was definitely a lack of peace, a lack of justice. They're still waiting for that shoot to come up from the stump of Jesse. And then suddenly, things start happening. Suddenly, people start talking like this ultimate ruler has come. And they're claiming that he's this little baby, Jesus. And then as he grows up, he's, he's, this, he's this, 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 this rabbi who's, who's out and preaching. Out. Could this be the ultimate ruler that they were talking about? I want to look next at how Jesus is the ultimate ruler. How does Jesus fulfill what Isaiah is talking about? How do we get this glimpse of him in in Isaiah 11? Well, first of all, what was Jesus' identity? Who was he? Does it it match with what Isaiah said? Well, in our scripture reading that, that Jonathan read earlier from Luke 1, we read about Mary, who was visited by an angel, and the angel tells her this about the son that's going to be born to her. About Jesus. He says, the, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Before Jesus is even born, this angel is, is announcing to Mary that this baby who's going to be born, he's the ultimate ruler that you've been waiting for. He's coming. And, and, and what does he highlight about it? And he's coming from the line of David. He is, it's, it's his father, David, that he's taking the throne from. We see that throughout the, the, the infancy narratives about, you know, Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem, to the, the city of David. And so, so part of Jesus' identity is that, that he is from the line of David. He's, he is this shoot springing out of the stump of Jesse. But the other aspect of Jesus' identity that that lines up with what Isaiah was talking about, is that the Spirit is upon him. Remember, that's another thing that that Isaiah said about this this one who is going to come, that the Spirit would be there. Well, when you look at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's two things that kind of highlight this. The first is that when Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, what happens as he comes out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him in the form of a dove. Right there, the Spirit is coming upon him, showing people that that this is the one Isaiah was talking about. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads from, guess what, the prophet Isaiah, another chapter there, Isaiah 61, and he he begins that, that, that chapter by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
And then he goes on to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, as he begins his ministry, he's saying, guess what, guys? I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. I am the spirit-filled one. I am the one who the spirit is upon. Of course, Jesus had the spirit in a unique way because he was himself God, the Son, in, in communion with the Father and the Spirit. And so Jesus, he has this, this, this identity. He's from the line of David. The Spirit is upon him. But what about how this ruler was supposed to rule? I mean, if Jesus was the ultimate ruler who Isaiah was describing, then, then Jesus' rule, and we think when we, when we turn to Jesus' rule, we, we should see the same thing that we saw in Isaiah, right? That, that he is establishing justice, that he is establishing peace. But here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus walked this earth, and we live in a world that's still full of injustice and conflict and war. Justice and peace have not been fully established. And, and the images that, that Isaiah gives about the wolf living with the lamb and, and the infant playing near the hole of a cobra, I think they, they, they seem just as far off to us as they must have been to Isaiah's audience. So if Jesus came 2,000 years ago to be this ultimate ruler that Isaiah spoke about, why hasn't he established justice and peace on this earth? Well, to help answer that question, I actually want to talk about a children's book. One of my favorite books when I was growing up, it's a classic, it's C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, from the Chronicles of Narnia. And they came out uh, with a movie, you know, several years back about this. If you've, if, you've, if you've never read this book, just to kind of give a little picture of it, there's this land of Narnia. Where, where these four children find a, a journey, they enter into this wardrobe and they find their, themselves in this land of Narnia. But the thing is, when they arrive in this land, there's this perpetual winter because it's under the control of this white witch. And so this white witch is ruling in this land and, and, and it's always winter and it's never Christmas. It's like a, a child's worst nightmare, right? That got all the snow, but there's no presents that are coming. And, and what happens is when someone crosses this white witch, she turns them into a stone statue. But then one day, the snow starts to melt. And, and spring starts to break through this winter. And, and the white witch is starting to wonder, what's happening here? You know, what, what's going on? The reason that, that the winter is ending is because someone has come. Aslan, the lion that you see on that image the true king of Narnia. And he has returned to the land. And so, so spring is starting to come, but, but the witch's power is still strong. And so Aslan, is, as, the, as the story goes along, Aslan ends up actually dying, laying down his life to free one of those, those four children, Edmund, who had been a traitor. But then Aslan rises to new life. He comes back to life. But the witch's power is still not completely gone. Her stone statues remain throughout the land. But then there's this moment after Aslan has, has, has come back to life 
where he goes, actually he flies through the air, kind of like that image with, with those two girls on his back, and he goes to the white witch's castle. And he begins to breathe on them with his breath. And every time he breathes on a statue, it comes back to life. The person who had been frozen is, is alive again. And finally, after, after he's breathed life into all these stone statues, they, they go to find the white witch who's in this battle against the other Narnians. And, and finally, Aslan comes and he destroys the white witch, completing the work that he had begun when he first returned to Narnia and brought the spring. Now, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote this children's book, he actually wrote it. It's... it's with a very expressed intention of telling the story of Jesus, actually, in the words of, of, of this book. Because just like Narnia was in this perpetual winter, we are under the control of, not the white witch, but under the control of sin and evil and the devil in our world. And, and we live in this perpetual reality of, of injustice, and of conflict and of inequality, we look around at our world and we see this reality of, of, of a world that, was, that, that started all the way back in the garden. And all these things, they come from what we talked about earlier. When we try to rule ourselves, what happens? We make a mess of things. And even our rulers, when they try to rule, they, they add to the mess. And so we're living in this world that's it's like, it's like winter without Christmas. We're all under the control of sin and evil. But then, the spring started to come 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born. It was the beginning of the spring, like Aslan returning to Narnia. And what happened, just like Aslan died for a traitor, Jesus died. Not just for one traitor, but, but for all of us who are traitors, who have turned our back on him, who, who try to rule our lives with our own agenda and our own ways, who, who often treat people unjustly and cause conflicts. And Jesus received all the injustice and the evil and the sin of humanity when he went to the cross. But just like Aslan, he didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. But even after Jesus, even after Aslan died and rose again, as we see it in that book, there's this process of bringing that victory fully. He had to start breathing on those stone statues, and, and eventually he had to, to destroy the, the white witch herself. And so in a similar way, Jesus secured his victory on the cross and in his resurrection, but we still live in a world where that victory has not been fully realized. There's still stone statues all around us that need to be breathed upon by Jesus' life. And like the white witch, the reality of sin and evil still exists in our world, and we're waiting for the day when Jesus will return and finally conquer it all, destroy it all. But we live in this in-between time, between Jesus' victory on the cross and resurrection and between the time when he will return when he will establish his rule of justice and peace fully. And so we, as I said kind of at the beginning of, of my sermon, we are in the middle of the Grand Canyon. We're walking this journey 
We see the other side. We see, you know, when, when Christ will return. We know he's coming, but we're living in the in-between time. But here's the cool thing. In the book, I mentioned, there's these two girls, Susan and Lucy, and they get to ride on Aslan's back to that witch's castle. And they get to see Aslan breathing on all these stone statues, one by one, giving life to them. And in this next picture, you see kind of an image from, from the movie, where there's this one statue, Mr. Tumnus, that, that Lucy loves so much. And, and Aslan gets to breathe his life on that statue as, the little, as these girls are watching. They get to see this moment where, where, where Aslan's power breaks through. And guess what? In the same way, you and I get to see glimpses of Jesus doing that in our world. If you were here the last couple weeks, two, week, two weeks ago we talked about God's kingdom, kind of a similar theme in some ways to, to even what we talked about today. And I talked about how God's kingdom even you know, was breaking through in, in some of the ministry of our church and seeing some of the things that happened you know, 40 years ago. Last week we talked about a, a church two churches down in North Carolina where, where there was, that they joined together to bring about this reconciliation happening between these two pastors. And, and these are examples of, of what we're talking about here. Jesus breathing new life. Whenever we see a just judgment, injustice being corrected, guess what? It's a glimpse of the rule of justice that Jesus started on the cross that he's going to bring about eventually when he returns. When we see a moment where two people are reconciled together, where Jesus is able to bring two warring parties together, it's Jesus breathing life in the midst of, of our world. And the amazing thing is that, that he wants to use us, his church, to help breathe that life. That he has given us his spirit in the same way that he gave that he rested Jesus on the, the spirit upon Jesus. And he actually wants to use us to help breathe that life, Jesus' life, into situations of conflict and situations of injustice. As we close, I want to just give you two questions to think about. The first is, have you come under the rule of the ultimate ruler, Jesus? Have you acknowledged your need for him to rule in your life? Or are you trying to rule your own life by yourself? Have you let go of your desire for independence and your resistance to anyone ruling over you? The reality is one day Jesus is going to return and he will rule over everything. And so the question is, will you come under his rule now, willingly, to embrace the fact that Jesus actually rules with justice and peace and compassion and love and he wants to rule in your life? But the second question is, are you reflecting in your life the kind of rule that Jesus is bringing? Are you looking for opportunities to, to breathe God's spirit for us as a church to come alongside of situations of injustice and to say, no, 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 Jesus' rule is one of justice and fairness. And, and so we're going to speak up, actually, against that injustice. Or to come into a situation of conflict and and to be his agent of bringing peace and reconciliation between different people. 
we're never going to be able to bring the fullness of, of God's justice and peace in this world. That's something that will only happen when Jesus returns. But as we experience the justice and peace of God in our lives, we're invited to, to help bring about and, and, and see and glimpses of those realities here. So let's pray. As, as the end of the book of Revelation says, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want him to come. But as we're waiting for him to come, let's be his agents of proclaiming this good news to people around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you to, to come and breathe your life into our lives. Lord, to breathe your, your spirit, to bring healing in, in moments, in places where, where there is war and and a lack of peace in our world and in our lives, and to breathe your justice into situations of, of injustice, Lord, that we would, would stand up as your people to, to speak on behalf of the vulnerable. Lord, when our rulers won't, and we pray that you would bring this, Lord, in our world, even as we know that, that that it won't come fully until you return. But thank you, Jesus, for coming into our world, for, for conquering sin and death, and, and for inviting us to come under your rule. And so come, Jesus, rule in our lives, and use us, Lord, as your agents of, of breathing life into this world so that others would come under your rule as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.